Philippians chapter number 1, verse number 12 through 18. This passage you want to focus on this morning. Now, if you remember, uh, if you remember the situation that uh, Paul um, is responding to, the church at Philippi uh, were concerned for him, and they had sent Epaphroditus um, with uh, money, finances, um, and care, their own love, to reach into his life um, to find out how he was doing um, since he was imprisoned. Um, and so they're expecting to hear about that, and Paul has begun this letter um, with a uh, response of thanksgiving, a focus on them, a prayer for them, uh, but of course it's going to be fresh in their minds. Paul, how are you doing? You know, what's the outcome here? What's the next steps? What is your trial going to look like? Um, how are you handling things? Are you bearing up underneath uh, this imprisonment? And also, how are these effects, how are these things affecting the gospel, right? Um, is the gospel moving forward? Are you able um, to do anything from the standpoint of, of witnessing or establishing churches? And it's interesting what Paul does. Paul does not describe the facts of his imprisonment. He does not say, here's what it's like. Um, we might like that from a historical standpoint, but that's not what he does, right? Um, he doesn't walk through all of that. Rather, he describes the effects of it. He says, here's how it is um, operating in my life and in the progress of the gospel. Um, and so he focuses their attention um, upon that. And ultimately, he wants to draw their eyes and their heart um, to an understanding uh, that God is going to move forward the gospel, that Paul's imprisonment um, is not going to hinder it, but in fact is going to advance it. Um, and so as we look at this passage, we'll see this begin to be developed. So follow along with, with me. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse number 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter uh, do it out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And I think what we draw from this is the simple truth that we ought to trust God that he will advance the gospel. Uh, Paul wants to be very careful um, to present that concept to the church in Philippi, um, and he wants to push that forward um, even through this letter, uh, that God will um, advance the gospel. We see him doing that um, through circumstances, and I think that's easy to see in Paul's life, um, and we'll unpack that, but it's also something that we need to see uh, in our life. Uh, in verse number 12 through 14, he says again, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, um, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, maybe it's hard to imagine that such is the case. Um, I think it's much easier for us to expect bad things to happen. Um, that you kind of anticipate that one problem is only going to balloon into another problem. But that's kind of a, a normal thing. In fact, we have all heard of Murphy's Law, right? Heard of Murphy's Law. Uh, what is Murphy's Law? Murphy's Law, um, if the legend is correct, Murphy's Law was written by a project manager named uh, Edward Murphy. He was a captain at Edwards Air Force Base. And uh, he wrote down Murphy's Law in 1949. Um, here's, here's Murphy's Law. Number one, nothing is easy as it looks. Doesn't that sound about right? Number two, everything takes longer than you think. Well, yeah. Number three, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Okay, that's often how it's summarized, right? Number four, if there is a possibility of several things going wrong, the one that will cause the most damage will be the one to go wrong. Uh, the corollary to that is if there is a worse time for something to go wrong, it will happen then. Number five, if anything simply cannot go wrong, it will anyway. Uh, number six, if you perceive that there are four possible ways in which a procedure can go wrong, and you circumvent these, then a fifth way, unprepared for, will promptly develop. This sounds like an engineer. Uh, is who's putting this together. No, no offense to our engineers. That was a compliment. Uh, number seven, left to themselves, things tend to go from bad to worse. Number eight, if everything seems to be going well, you have obviously overlooked something. <laughs> number nine, nature always sides with the hidden flaw. Number ten, it's impossible to make anything foolproof because fools are so ingenious. Number 11, whenever you set out to do something, something else must be done first. Yes. And number 12, every solution breeds new problems. Uh, well, we laugh at that. There's points of that that we're like, yes, that's so true. I lived that last week, right? Um, we experienced that a little bit here in the building as we suffered through um, the beginning of school and everything that's breaking, right? Things just continue to break and break again and break again. It's just like, when will it stop? Um, but ultimately, this is not Paul's viewpoint. And I just want for us to recognize that. And this is not Paul simply saying the opposite of what he believes to be true. I think what Paul's doing here is he's embracing a genuine view of what God is doing. Um, Paul doesn't just point out that the gospel has made progress um, in spite of adversity. We might anticipate that. In spite of all these problems, God has not been hindered. But what he does is he encourages them that the adversity itself turned out for the advancement of the gospel. And that's the amazing nature of our God, um, is that he takes this which could have been viewed as evil and he turns it to that which is good. We start out by recognizing that the gospel cannot be shackled. Um, Paul, of course, is in prison, but... The gospel itself cannot be chained. Uh, the imprisonment of Paul made it possible for the whole Praetorian Guard to be exposed to the faith. Uh, and if we look back at that passage, um, he says, verse 13, so that it became known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Man, that's a strong statement, isn't it? 
the Imperial Guard, the Praetorium, it consisted of 9,000 hand-picked soldiers. If Paul is positioned in Rome, which I believe he is, we are, I argued for that, but if he's there, 9,000 hand-picked soldiers. Did they all hear the gospel? Is that what he's saying? Well, he's clearly saying um, that in the imprisonment that has occurred, he has had opportunity to witness, and the word has gone out. And what exactly has gone out? Look at that last part in verse 13. It says, to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Um, so the idea there um, is that the reason for him being in chains... He literally says, I am in chains in Christ. So here's Paul. He's put into this Roman imprisonment. And in the midst of that, there's going to be a natural question. Hey, what did you do? If you were a guard, um, isn't that a pretty natural thing? What did you do? Why are you here? Um, and Paul is going to be communicating, I am here because of my faith in Christ. Um, and so this cause of Christ um, is what forms this opportunity for him to share the truths about Jesus Christ. Because, of course, they're going to ask the question, why don't you just deny Christ? Or isn't there a middle road? They'd say, have you ever thought about just swearing fidelity to Caesar, and then they're just going to let you go? And then you can say anything that you want. Um, how many Christians during Paul's day did exactly that, Right? And so here's Paul talking to these guards, um, and he's sharing with them, I am here because of Christ, both in the sense, both in the sense uh, that it is Christ who called me to this, but also in the sense that Christ has put me here. And so now Paul gets the opportunity to share the truth about him with these guards. Hey, maybe I'm here in chains because of you, Veticus, whatever their name might be, right? I tried to pick a Roman name there. Um, you, know, they, you know, whatever the name might be, you know, maybe I am here uh, because of you. Uh, and we, we consider what that would have looked like. These are hand-picked soldiers. These were people who were honored with double pay, with good pensions, with special duties. But among their probably not-so-special duties uh, was they had to guard the imperial prisoners. Um, and history does tell us that this was likely by an attached chain. So Paul, you can imagine, and this is our sanctified imagination at work, okay, I freely acknowledge that, but you can imagine Paul um, as these guards come and they shackle him, a new guard to himself, that Paul just sits there smiling, um, excited to see the new guard, thanking God for the opportunity to share the gospel with yet another captive listener. What a beautiful thing, right? Now, is that exactly what happened? I don't know that I can say that for sure. That's exactly what happened. But boy, that's easy to imagine, isn't it? And so here's Paul just rejoicing the fact that his imprisonment um, is actually the tool that God is using to push forward the gospel, both to the imperial guard, the praetorium, but also the household of the highest levels of government in the Roman Empire. Uh, and it's just an amazing thing to, God, to see God using him. In fact, if we look um, at the very end of this letter, Philippians chapter 4, verse 21, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And so clearly, the gospel has made some inroads into even the household of Caesar. And it's like, how did that happen? 
And it's like through what God did, even in Paul's life. There's a a theologian, Thomas Oden. He went to Cuba to study the effects of uh, Fidel Castro's reign, um, particularly in Cuba, on the church. Um, And, of course, if you have done any kind of study or knowledge of that, you know that um, when Fidel Castro was in charge in Cuba, um, that he went to great lengths to persecute the Christian church. Um, And he made it illegal. Um, He persecuted um, individual uh, Christians. Um, And what what the theologian Thomas Oden, what he discovered, he found that the church in Cuba, because of the oppression against Christianity, uh, which Fidel institutionalized, um, so he made it part of the government, Uh, and it it was because of that oppression, um, says this theologian, that it greatly expanded. One long-time Cuban believer um, made these observations. He said this, the search for meaning is just as crucial as the search for bread. While the economy around us is falling apart, Christians are living in a state of special grace. He said it is not difficult for Cubans to see the difference between the people of God and those who are desperately trying to live without faith. Ordinary Cubans are becoming aware of the church as a life-saving community of hope. And I would say that's the progress of the gospel, right? That's what God does to move things forward from that standpoint. I read about a missionary effort in Turkey some years ago. And the believers were experiencing persecution. In fact, a major Turkish newspaper. It has a large distribution throughout the country. Um, It sought to do an expose on the entire missionary community in Ankara, the capital of Turkey. And so literally, here's what it did. It literally listed all of the names and addresses of believers that were living in that capital of Turkey. And it listed them right there in the newspaper, and it explained exactly what they were doing. They also exposed all the discipleship material they had. They printed a copy of one of their books, and it looked really bad for the work of Christ, especially there in the capital city. But the newspaper printed as well the phone number that people were supposed to call to get a free copy of the discipleship book that was being used. And within one week, over 600 Turks had called in for their free copies of the discipleship book. You know, while those circumstances were probably pretty heated, you know, the gospel was unhindered, unshackled. The gospel cannot be shackled. But we also see that the gospel cannot be silent. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, the imprisonment advanced the gospel by causing these other Christians to be bold. And you have to appreciate what he says. Verse 14, he says, most of the brothers. He says, is that really most? Is that what it's actually meaning? Yeah. He doesn't say many. He doesn't say a few. He refers to the majority. The majority of the brothers having become confident. And please note, Paul isn't saying here the majority of the missionaries. The missionaries finally got with it and started doing their job. That's not what he's saying, right? He's like saying, the, this is, these are just normal believers. This is like you and me. These are just average people. Um, and, and what are they doing? They are becoming more bold. 
Man, there's a need for that, isn't it? Isn't it amazing how many times in Paul's letters he's writing back to his churches and he says, pray for me that I may be bold. And it's like, man, I need that. If Paul's asking to be bold, what do I need? I need like 10 times that boldness. I'm to be willing to share with others about Jesus Christ. And it's important for us to recognize um, that he is embracing it as a team, a group effort, a body. They're in this together. You know, how would Paul's imprisonment give others confidence? Well, you know, Paul's leadership through his willingness to suffer well is obviously impactful. You know, when we, when we are willing to suffer for someone, we are putting the inherent value of it on display. And so here's Paul willing to sacrifice his life for the advance of the gospel. And so here's another believer in Rome that watches Paul do that, and they go, you know what? I should probably be willing to say something. Maybe I'm not quite at the point where I want to be chained, but yet I want to say something. And so there's a boldness that comes from someone who is really just completely out there. And, and that's so important for us to see, because part of this is the body doing this together. It is indeed the church that works together. You say, I'm an introvert. I don't naturally do those things. That's not something that I'm bent towards. And he's, I'm going to leave it only for those that are bent that way. And I would say, that's not the picture we're given in Philippians 1.14. But are there going to be some who do it way better than others? For sure. But as a unit, we all work together. And so I see somebody that is excellent at that. And they're ready with a quick word of encouragement or pointing towards Christ. And I'm encouraged by that. And I'm saying, man, I need to be ready. And it causes me to be put into that position. So Paul's leadership is there. It's worthwhile enough to go to prison. It elevates it. He's standing forward and taking the leadership. It elevates it. But yeah, we also recognize this is more than merely seeing a fellow human responding well. Because they're recognizing that God is involved. Paul has been divinely commissioned. God is at work through Paul. It's like, it, this isn't about Paul being winsome. This isn't about Paul just being like really good at what he does. God's at work. And it's like, if God's at work, I want to be a part of that. Hey, have you ever looked around and say, man, I would, I would love it if there would be one day where I would have the opportunity to lead somebody else to Jesus Christ and to see them get saved. Wouldn't that be awesome? And he'd say, Pastor, I've already done that. I don't need to do it again. And I'd say, well, if you've done it, you, you know you want to do more of it, right? And it's like, how do I do that? And I would say, be bold. Be unashamed. Speak out. Talk to others. And you say, I don't know exactly what to say, or I might not do it in the best way. I may, I may mess it up. And I would say, you cannot mess it up. You can't. You can't. You say, you don't know me. I might mess it up. I say, but this is God at work. You won't mess anything up. You won't. Um, if you're just simply sharing about Jesus Christ, God will use that. That's all Paul was doing. He was simply talking about his Savior. God will advance the gospel through circumstances, but he will also advance the gospel through Christ. Through Christ. Let's look at verse number 15. So some indeed preach Christ through envy and rivalry, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, 
knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He begins with this, indeed. In the NIV it says, it is true that. The New American Standard says, to be sure. ESV says, indeed. What's the point? Um, we might be tempted to supply, as you have heard. And so here's Paul writing back, and, he's, and there's this underlying tension there, where it's like, okay, they have heard that there's a faction within the Roman church that ultimately is not for Paul. <laughs> and so he says, some indeed, you have heard that some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. So what is Paul going to do about that? How is he going to respond to it, right? Um, and ultimately what he does is he points to Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the right message that needs to be talked about. Um, he's not concerned about the conflict as much as he is about Christ. He's not concerned about the competition as much as he is about Christ. And what is it about Christ that, should be that we should be preaching? You know, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse number 16. Uh, we take our cue from Paul. Here's what he says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. The godliness that was hidden, but now is revealed, right? What is that mystery of godliness? It is a person. It is Jesus himself. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Hey, if we want to think about Jesus Christ more and more and more, we'll begin to think the way that Paul thought. He was constantly consumed with the person of Jesus the Christ. Um, so let's, let's quickly think through what his message was. And I'm just going to use Paul to lay this out. Jesus crucified. He is the right message. What is that message? The message is that Jesus was crucified. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You know, Paul was unashamed about Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying. Uh, Paul was unashamed that that looked foolish. Paul was unashamed that that made Jesus appear as if he had lost, that it made him appear weak, uh, that the idea that somebody would spend their life in such a foolish manner um, was uh, any part of wisdom. But he preached Christ crucified. He also preached him risen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 19. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most pitied. And he goes on to describe how important it is to believe in the resurrection of Jesus uh, himself. Uh, and I'm, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it's a, a wonderful passage. I apologize for putting it up there and not reading it. Um, Jesus crucified, Jesus risen, but then he also emphasized Jesus as Lord. And I think we see Paul bringing this forward many times. Here's 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Can you think of how many times the Apostle Paul referred to himself as a, a bondservant, a dolos of Jesus, right? 
Jesus as Lord, and then also Jesus returning. Where do we draw our rapture passages from, right? Um, second coming was very much near uh, to the mind of Paul. Here's one of the rapture passages, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So let's consider this, you know, maybe personally and corporately. Corporately as a church, let me just ask this question, what do we do with Jesus? How much should he be at the center of what we do? You know, dear friends, there are many issues that might drive our purpose as a church, aren't there? Many things that need correcting, many things that are wrong. Abortion, pornography, media bias, economic justice, racial discrimination, classism, sexism, transgenderism, poverty, nationalism. But all of these things, we have to be careful that they do not marginalize the gospel. First and foremost, we must preach Christ. Christ crucified. Christ risen. Christ as Lord. Christ coming again. This is who we are. This is the heartbeat of the gospel. This is what will move forward. All of those other things are real, and we shouldn't turn a blind eye to them, but they cannot marginalize that which Jesus has done. That's corporately. So let's think about this privately. As people, what do you do with Jesus? Let's just get really honest with ourselves. How much should Jesus be at the center of what you do? What are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your children grow up? To find a new job? Can I get an amen? Anybody want a new job? To retire early? You know, none of these is inadmissible. None of these are to be despised. The question is whether these aspirations become so devouring that the Christian's central aspiration is squeezed to the, squeezed to the periphery, right? I went in. I should have gone out. To the point that it might even be choked out of existence entirely. Why? Because my desires for these other things overwhelms who Jesus is in my life. And it's like, that's what we have to be careful doesn't happen. That all those other things ought to come underneath the umbrella, the rubric of Christ himself. That that's the measure by which we look at everything. And so 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Boy, isn't this a balm to your spirit? Isn't this joy to your soul? For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. I'm speaking to a bunch of dead people. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Can I get an amen? I mean, this is, this is what we live for, right? Um, this is what life is about. That my present life on planet Earth ought to be lived for Jesus because he gave his life for me. He made me, who was dead, to be alive so that I could live for him. What a wondrous truth. This is what our life 
must be. And so when we talk about this concept of Jesus as the right message, that, that's what we have to focus upon. God will advance the gospel through Christ, and if I want to be a part of that, then I need to be about Christ. And if instead I want to do my own thing, then I'm separating from God. Even as a believer, that's possible. I can step away from God and try to do my own thing. But that's not what God calls us to. And he says, be a part of what I am doing. Jesus as the Christ is the right message. He's also the right motive. Look at verse number 15. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You know, Jesus must also be our motive. This section of scripture, it begins and ends with Jesus as the message but in the middle, it identifies uh, two groups uh, within the church, one with right motives, one with wrong motives. And you say, does that really happen within the church? You know, we should note that Paul's response to this is different in the letter to, to Galatia. Do you remember what he says there? He says, if somebody preaches a false gospel, let them be accursed. But that's not what he's doing here. He doesn't actually curse the people um, who have the wrong motives. Why? Because their message isn't wrong. It's just their motive. Okay, so let's wrap our minds around this. Um, how could it be that preaching the gospel would have caused issues for Paul? Well, there were people, apparently, as we study this, right, within the, that body of believers, there were people that were motivated by jealousy and rivalry. And you say, within the church, is that possible? Could anybody within the church be motivated by jealousy? That seems ludicrous. Um, but yet, of course, that's entirely possible. It's actually probably not that hard to imagine. Imagine Paul coming to Rome to be placed in prison. For what? What is he in prison for? Well, he's made it clear. Preaching Christ. And so here you are, a believer, in Rome, not in prison. Here's Paul in prison for preaching Christ. And the question is, how come you're not in prison? <laughs> well, maybe I'm not preaching Christ the same way. Maybe I should be in prison. Uh, but I really don't want to be in prison. <laughs> and so now you have a bit of a power struggle, right? Because here comes in Paul. Paul's kind of a, a big fish, small pond, right? And it's like now he's, he's there, and it's like maybe that's the model we should, maybe all of us should be in prison. Can you imagine the turmoil this would cause in the church? And so what are the, what's the leadership going to do? What are they going to do? Is it like, yeah, let's all start preaching Christ and let's all go to prison? Are they going to start to say, you know what? Hey, you know, Paul, he's a great guy, great guy. Tremendous guy. Tremendous guy. I'm not sure he's doing it quite right. Um, if he was doing it right, maybe God wouldn't be punishing him by having him be in prison. Have you ever thought about that? Um, I'm preaching Christ. He is preaching Christ, but one of us is in prison, what's not? Who do you think has greater influence? Um, can you see how this would go? And so you have this rivalry, this jealousy, this selfish ambition, and Paul here is stepping away from it all, and he's uninterested in it. He doesn't want to play the game. He doesn't want to play the politics. He doesn't want to get involved. He doesn't write back to the church at Philippi and say, here are some terrible people, let me name them. He rather says, they're preaching Christ. I'm cool with that. Man, that's a lesson, isn't it? Because it's really tough to step back from some of the same kinds of games and to say, I'm going to give up my selfish ambition 
and I'm simply going to focus on doing what God calls me to do from that standpoint. Now, how do you oppose that type of thing? You know, Paul recognizes that they're operating with a base mind, an earthly mindset, a mind that's more concerned with what they can gain here on earth than what they can gain in heaven. And so he simply speaks to their motives, and he pulls out his own motive, and he calls people to look at their motives. Now, do we imagine that Paul would refuse to talk to these people and redirect them according to walking in the Spirit? And I would say, if Paul met them, there's no doubt that he would talk to them about it. There's no question in my mind that he would directly address it. But that's not his main purpose. And what does that do for us? I would say it causes us to say, I want to examine my own heart regularly, consistently. Dear friends, you and I, we must not be the faction within the church that's seeking to build our own kingdom. Motivated by jealousy and rivalry. Preaching Christ, but doing so with impure motives. And what's the antidote to that? That the Spirit of God would use his word to convict our own hearts. I would also say we ought to work to build up our church, our congregation, the people. The church are the people, right? Uh, We ought to work to build ourselves up to be a place where we can come together whenever we meet to encourage and strengthen each other as a team with a common goal. This isn't a competition. Rather, we ought to promote our, our interests and desires that are common within us. Later on in Philippians, we'll get there, he talks about looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why is he bringing it up again? Because it was an issue. Um, It was an issue uh, that was front and center for Paul. Um, So it's important for us to embrace it from the same, same standpoint. Can you imagine coming to church, talking about your witness, your elevation of Christ in your life, not to lord it over someone, not to poke them in the eye, but rather to encourage them and to have them encourage you. To ask them for prayer, to reach into someone's life, say, hey, can you pray for me? I'm going to meet with so-and-so. I would like to share the gospel with them, but you know, I get in my own way way too often. Would you pray for me? And next week when we get together, would you ask me about it? What a wonderful body, right? Would that be boldness? That'd be boldness. Would that encourage others? It absolutely would. Would that be the type of thing where it's like we're unified around one goal? Absolutely. That unity that comes from that singular purpose. So as we close this out, let me just give you um, a couple words of application. Three simple things that I want to lay out before us. Here's the first. Number one, we ought to preach Christ. We ought to preach Christ. Dear friends, let us not let inferior pursuits diminish the importance of that central task. Jesus died so that we might live and so that we might live for him. We ought to preach Christ. Number two, we ought, to preach, pre- we ought to preach Christ purely. Our motives are important. I know that Paul doesn't go after them, but he is laying out the necessity of right motives. Our motives are important. If we are bringing forth the centrality of Jesus for the right reasons, uh, then we are bringing forth Jesus rightly. But if we are bringing forth the centrality of Jesus for the wrong reasons, then we're still centered on ourselves. So I would say, may God help us to be honest with ourselves. When was the last time that you examined your own ambition and motives and you surrendered them to the Savior? No one can do it for you. No one can do it for me. I must be willing to bow my heart before God. I must be willing to be honest before him. We ought to preach Christ. We ought to preach him purely. 
And then thirdly, we ought to preach them joyfully. You know, this passage shows that when our joy is connected to the advancement of the gospel rather than to our physical condition or responses of the people around us, it remains firm. So here's Paul in prison, chained, not doing what he would like to do, and yet his joy has not diminished, it's only increased. That is a joy that transcends circumstances. And so this passage teaches us as a modern church something about the nature of joy. It's not the self-satisfied delight that everything is going your way. It's the settled peace that arises from making the gospel the focus of your life and from understanding that God is interested in moving it forward. And so then all of the challenges simply become a tool that God uses, and we delight to see it happen. And so, friends, if in your circumstances you lack this kind of joy, can I humbly, gently, lovingly suggest it's because your focus is off. And it's like, but how do I get that focus back? You get that focus back, right? You, you renew the mind. And he said, I'm so wrapped up, this, this burden that I have, it's so painful I can't get past it. And I would say, pull back farther. Take a larger step back and see the bigger picture. And he'd say, but this is going to affect me for years and years and years. And I would say, there's something else that's going to affect you for eternity. Well, forget about that. Put your joy there. And you say, yeah, but I don't see the end to this. I don't see the end to it. And it's like, but God does. And he will advance the cause of Christ through your life. And you can be a part of that. And there's so much joy there. We ought to preach Christ. We ought to preach him purely. We ought to preach him joyfully.